Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Randy Hines from the Kalachi Shop coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined this week by my beloved friend and frequent co-host, Linda Salinas. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hey, gang. Uh, I'm living my best life. No, bam, 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 bam. I'm over that. I'm after, after that's, that's totally last year, and especially because I was mocked while, uh, while recording, I'm, I'm over it. All right. So it's a new it's a new year and a new Salinas. New no, it's all it's always the same Salinas. All right. Well, let's get right into the news of the week, starting with topic number one. Sad news. Pax Americana closed. Ugh. There was a time when it opened. Magical. It was one of the very best restaurants in Houston. Absolutely. With Adam Doris in the kitchen and and Plinio Sandalio and Shepard Ross running the front of the house. That was a magical restaurant. And then Aaron Lara at the bar. Right, right. Plinio left pretty quickly. And, and oh, Martha Wilcox came on and, and she was awesome. Brought this great experience and knowledge and helped Adam. I mean, Adam had this really clear vision. And, and it's on me. We've done 80-something episodes of this podcast. I haven't had Adam Doris on yet. But <gasps> I know. I'll fix that. It's, what it's, a loser. I'll fix that. Get it together. But, Sandler. you know, this like incredibly like vegetable driven, small plates, lots of herbs, pulling in all these different influences. He'd worked for Revival Market and Brian Caswell at Stella Sola. And I mean, the, I, the but like what was really interesting about that concept was that. Right. And I mean, I have a little bit of history with Adam Doris because we worked together at his very first kitchen job i worked at the front of the house he worked back of the house and this was at voice at the voice hotel icon. at the okay. hotel icon and it was years later that when i was in san francisco uh we just happened to be in san francisco at the right time at the right you know like and we ended up having this magical dinner at tartine and tartine is this exceptional like I wouldn't even say, because farm to table is so passe now, but it's like fermentables and fresh ingredients. And it's just like, if you ever get a chance to 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 go to San Francisco, that is like the cornerstone of like amazing, beautiful food. And when he opened up PAX, like he's like, yeah, you know, I went and you know, what's funny is, is that he was in San Francisco and he ended up like leaving his stage um, I think it was like Koi or Saison or something like that. It was. A he was supposed to stage at, at one fine dining restaurant. It didn't work out. And he wound up staging at Tartine. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, but well, the cool thing was, is that like, if you think about it, it was like, he could have staged somewhere where it was like super fine dining and super stuffy. He chose to work somewhere else because there was so much 
more um, amazing flavors and like this really like experimental small plate. So, so when you when he opened up Pax Americana, the vision was absolutely like stunning. Like food was great. You could go there and have two or three snacks and not feel like you had to do a sixty five per person, you know, special tasting menu, you know, fussy. You could just sit at the bar, have a few snacks or get crushed. Or yeah, or you could order like a, a stunning whole fish bycatch, something or that dry aged bone in ribeye that yeah. they would you know, bring whole, show you whole and then take back to the kitchen and bring it back out sliced and it was always yeah beautiful and beefy. Yeah. I mean I had yeah, great. probably some of my favorite Houston meals ever at PAX when it opened. Yeah. But, you know, that proved difficult to sustain. Adam left after a couple of three years to open Presidio. Martha followed about a year after. And so for the last year or so, it just hasn't had the same culinary talent. And it's kind of, it drifted its, its focus. It wasn't as ambitious anymore. And it became more of a neighborhood restaurant, but, but the neighborhood had kind of moved on. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've, you've had Nobis open, you've had other restaurants open. Right. Riel, Nancy's Hustle, you know, they're kind of taking some of the ideas that, that PAX maybe led the way on, at least in terms of bringing them to Houston and putting their own spin on it and improving on it. It, Nobis is a great example, right? Nobis is that, is that dynamic, you know, you can do the small plates thing. You can sit at the bar, you can have a cocktail, or you can come with four people and really like load up and get deep into the wine list and order a couple of shareable, like big shareable entrees. Yeah, but you can't open up a chef-driven restaurant and have your chef leave. I'm sorry. No, that's not right. No, no. I mean, and like, and that's the whole thing is, is you know, I mean, restaurants and bars, you have an expiration date. And that expiration date, you better have your relationships nice and dug in there so that when you do switch a menu or you switch uh, draft beers or cocktails or anything like that, people don't like change. I mean, I've, I've said this a hundred times. Well, sure. There are, there are certain kinds of bars and restaurants that feel like they have a shelf life, right? The, the, the most obvious example is nightclubs. They pop real big. They get all the pretty people in and then 18 months later they close and become something else. Oh yeah. That's, and then, but you know, but not all restaurants and bars, right? Yeah. Poison girl is not going anywhere. Right. Poison girl is, is the comfortable, you know, pair of sweatpants in the bar world where it's it's pretty much the same. No, but I mean, very finely tailored, like very nicely made sweatpants. But well, like, I mean, and th- but there's so many people like within my own community that are like those guys are a bunch of assholes, and I'm like, and I mean, you're like you're having a two dollar, you know, right? You're having beer. you're drinking you're drinking Weller twelve for six bucks. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I get that, uh, and and certain kinds of right steakhouses don't have to change very much. No, absolutely you know, not. That, that kind of restaurant concept doesn't have to change very much. But if we think about kind of the chef-driven concepts that have opened over the last several years, right? Trinity opened and closed. Underbelly opened and closed. Oxheart opened and closed. Really, the only restaurant from that, the, the super ambitious restaurant from that period that, that's kind of chef-driven and really focused, it's still around, 
is the passing provisions. Yes. And I don't, I don't know what that says about Seth and Terrence as, as personalities. I think it's just that maybe they're just crazy people and they work really, really hard to keep that thing going. I but. mean, it's funny. Like we, we hear, you know, like, like there's so many people that have worked there and when they very first opened, it was just like, those guys are jerks, blah, 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 you know, like, I've heard it. yeah, I've heard it all. But yeah. you know what? Like in all honesty, I mean, I train people all the time. There's so many crybabies in the, in the, in the city and, and like, just shut up and work, you know? Um, I mean, I'm a big old crybaby personally. Like, I'm like, no, I don't want to, you know, but that's neither here nor there. Um, they've, they've gone through so much staff, you know, so much incredible staff, but there's one thing that will always ring true. That fucking food is delicious. Every Every time. time. Yeah. Every time. Bar snacks, uh, you know, special events. Like it's just a right. great restaurant and they've never left and they've never left and they're always there. Yes. And I think that, right. I think that's a testament to, and, and so if you open a chef driven restaurant and you don't have that, yeah, it's, it's probably not going to work out. I mean, Haven, you know, yeah. Haven was a chef-driven restaurant, but guess what? Guess who really owned? Guess who really wore pa- the pants in that that relationship? The owners, the owners. It wasn't like it was like they opened and it was really good, um, and all of a sudden it was like, oh well, I want lobster, and Randy's like, that's not at all what we do here. Like that's not at all farm. And we're going to have to get this lobster in the middle of freaking summer from somewhere. And he's, the guy was like, I don't care. You know, the owner didn't care. He's like, I just, I just want this. And it's funny, you know, I went to Eunice for the first time a couple of weeks ago and it was exceptional, exceptional. And one of the, one of the servers worked with me there and at, at Haven and, um, and he's like, I, he's like, I know you, I can't place you. And I'm like, I was your service director, Linda. And he's like, oh, he's like Salinas. And I'm like, oh, how are you doing? You know, how's this one? And you kind of get a, you, you can kind of get a good feel about the way that people feel as far as like staff is concerned. And he was like, man, this is like, this is like Haven, but like on steroids, but like, like everybody's in sync and pulling toward the same purpose. Yes. And he's like, and it's, he's like, the food's really good. And he's like, and it's at a good price point where there's not a lot of riffraff. Um, but right. super talented chef in the kitchen. Yeah. Focused menu, good service, pretty dining room. Pretty dining room. The design is wonderful. Yeah. Cool wine list. Yeah. Um, and so all that being said is, is that, you know, being chef driven does it have a does it have a time you know does it does it does it, does it have, have an expiration a, right absolutely absolutely but can you really pull pull well if you if you get it right i mean it's it's working well for them yeah right when it comes together yeah those are still the best restaurants to dine at oh absolutely so yes okay we've rambled on long enough topic number two uh, last week with Mary, we talked. I talked about Connie uh, Rosso closing in Montrose, and I hinted that a Tex-Mex restaurant might take the space. 
Surprise, surprise, I was right. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes I'm well informed. Oh, be quiet. The owners of the pit room, Sambrooks Management Group, uh, specifically Michael Sambrooks, uh, have leased that space and are going to open a, a Tex-Mex restaurant there. They don't have a name. They don't have a name for it yet, but they think it'll take them about six months to convert the building from a pizzeria into summertime a drinks. Yes. Uh, yeah. Frozen margaritas, uh, margaritas on the rocks. Uh, yeah. All of that is obviously in play. And the area where the pizza oven sits now is going to be uh, like a wood burning grill. So, and a tortilla station. So you'll be able to sit at the counter and watch the people. I really hope they rolling your dinner and rolling your tortillas. I really hope that they get a good designer for that space because that space was a disaster. It was such a it was so big. Like you'd have you like it's you walk big. in, you walk in at like five p.m. for like happy hour, and there it's like a sea of empty tables. There's no breaking breaking the line in the room, and you're just like, I just. I, I'll just come back when there's more people here. Like, and right. I don't want the entire staff staring at me while I eat my five dollar margarita pizza. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, let, let's hope that they uh, they find a, a beast to wrangle that. Well, know? sure, but but certainly you can say they've at the pit room they have proven adept at drawing a crowd, and and the pit room physically is located like a tenth of a mile from Connie Rosso. So this is their stretch of Richmond. I mean, who, who, like, let's talk about who opened up, who opened up the pit room. Okay. Michael Sambrooks and Bram Tripp. Bram Tripp. Chef, Chef Bram Tripp, yes. Chef's now in, uh... Chef's now working for uh, Tyson Cole and and Aaron Franklin, two two guys you may have heard of, at Loro in Austin. Yeah, but that guy's a Beast. A hardworking guy in a town. And he guy. came, and you know where he came, you know where he came from? He, I can't remember what city he's from, but. He's from, I believe he's from Cleveland. Maybe from Cleveland. Either Cleveland or Cincinnati. Well, he came to work at uh, Coltavare. Yeah, he worked at, yeah, he worked. For, he worked at Coltavare, and then he like jumped over, and I was like, what, no fine dining boo? And he's like, nope. Barbecues the way. And you know what? They were the first. Like, there's so much garbage barbecue in Houston. It's sad. And they came out with just like swinging, like just great barbecue. Those brisket fat um, tacos or tortillas, like, they just crush. Well, and that's the thing about the pit room is it's always had that Tex Mex component because they've always had the brisket fat tortillas, they've always had queso on the menu. That's They've always just, had is, that, salsas on the condiment bar. That, that's, that just They've means that you're, you're, you're in Texas. That, that, you're, that does not mean that you're Tex-Mex. Well, no, but, but they, have these, <laughs> they have these Mexican elements, and, and people really enjoy that about Duh. the pit room. And so now it's the barbecue, not the that. condiments. I mean, you know I'm a condiment queen, but that's not... No, no, no the barbecue is what's made them successful. Absolutely. But the, the Tex-Mex touches are what kind of made them yeah. stand out. And so to take just those basic building blocks and give them like a much more full expression uh-huh. in a dedicated Tex-Mex restaurant. That's why I'm really excited about this. And also the fact that it's close enough to where I live that I, I could walk to it if I wanted to in nice weather. In nice weather. Uh, well, let's in, see, I'm let, not walking in the rain. Well, let's just see what happens. Um, you know, I'm a big stickler about service. So yeah. And Steve, uh, Steve Breaker is their ops guy. And he worked at Reef for a long time. He's got, I mean, 
you know, Michael comes from a front of the house background too. Uh, worked at Liberty Kitchen back in the day, worked for Good Company for a while. So I think they have uh, a servicey background. And I think, you know, we talked about some of the challenges in that space. It's set back from the street a little bit. It can be a little bit hard to see. It's It has a lot of parking in that garage behind it, but you don't know that it's there. Uh, for the first time, as a first-time visitor, you don't know that. So they'll probably have a valet to try to mitigate some of that. But, you know, there's there's a lot of potential in that space and especially in those people executing that concept. And of course, you know, I just, I like Lyle Bento's food and I feel good about, you know, I don't know that Lyle has any Tex-Mex experience per se, but I feel like he's smart enough to figure it out. We'll see what happens again. (laughs) All right. Topic number three, magical dessert bar is coming to Montrose. This is a Dallas-based dessert shop devoted to (laughs) rainbow cakes and unicorn desserts. Uh, Let me say that as as the uncle of two nieces, five and under, unicorn desserts are like the coolest thing in the world for them. And I think that extends to maybe, I don't know, when you're 10 or 11, I think. Or if you're so, 23. Or yeah, or yeah, right if you're now. 23 and you just want like a really sparkly, fun Instagram birthday party. Oh, wait a minute. I think I saw that at a 36-year-old's party last week. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, rainbow cakes with giant unicorn horns. Or it's the hottest trend in desserts. So it, it makes sense that it's coming from Worst. the people who... It makes sense that it's coming from the people who opened a rolled ice cream shop uh, in Montrose. 907 West Timer. So right in between the uh, Velvet Taco... And the East Hampton Sandwich okay. Company. All right. So, so let's talk so about So the rolled this. ice cream is going to go away. Okay. So the rolled ice cream obviously did not do well, right? Okay. Well, it's a trendy thing, and that's 2017, and it's 2019 now. Who sure. Cares okay. All right. Um, so your failed concept, now you're going to dump another thing in there. All right. That has ho- a two-year shelf life. Let's hope that you pay- make rent. I mean, it's crazy. Like... But this is how does these dessert concepts go, right? They come in waves. It was cupcakes once upon a time. It was... No, I, I mean, I, you know what? I, I hope they do well. I hope they do well. No, no, well. I, I included this specifically because I knew you were going to hate it. Oh, God. I just like, I hate... You, Let the like, hate flow through you. Ah, it's the worst. I mean, it's just like, don't bait me. Like, don't bait me. Like I specifically baited. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying in, in general, oh, okay, all right, Dallas, come bring your concept in. Oh, wait a minute. Your Dallas concept in Montrose has failed. It was called Cane Rosso. Bye. Like, well, this one's called Chills 360. Okay, Chilled 360. I don't know. So I mean, Chills 360, but it's, and it's, well, not all Dallas concepts show. Velvet Taco is killing it. Well, I People mean, people love Velvet Taco. Uh, kill me. <laughs> does that mean does that mean you're ready for topic number four let's do this Come all right on. all right so somebody stole chris shepherd's barbecue pit. what the f what the freaking f man yeah the southern smoke barbecue pit that he uses for all his charity events was locked up behind one fifth and some guy pulled up his pickup truck and hooked it up and hauled it away like busted the locks and hauled it away. I mean, did a disgruntled employee do it? 
Well, I am I am not familiar with the facts of the case. There is some video surveillance that the Houston Police Department is reviewing. So I'm not going to speculate on the perpetrators. Bah, 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 bah. I'm going to say this this did happen before once to Ronnie Killen, who had a barbecue pit stolen. Did he ever get his? He did. It showed up in a field like three days later. Someone was like, Never mind. anonymous phone call. Uh, I saw your pits in a field. Just uh, don't ask any questions. Right. So I kind of thought the publicity for would kind of like Chris's barbecue pit would kind of push a similar result, but it's been a week and it still hasn't turned up yet. Of course, there's always that gap between podcast recording and podcast release. So it, it could, it could show up between now and then make this whole conversation relevant. But I, I will say if, if what a bunch of monsters. Yeah. It's like, it's like the, it's like the 2019 equivalent of cattle rustling. It's like, this is Texas. That is simply not done. You do not steal a man's cattle. You do not steal a man's spouse and you do not steal a man's barbecue pit. There are just some things that are not done. I mean, done. like, isn't there a better way? Like, why would you take the one where, because it's probably like, worth like $15,000. Like it's a, like it's to fight ms yeah. yo like it's literally it was brings... used for hurricane harvey relief yeah it is what a monster whoever it is and you know what they probably don't even listen to this podcast no no i i don't think that the pit thieves are listening to the podcast i'm hoping that in the very slim chance that someone who's listening to this podcast gets the opportunity to buy a very fancy barbecue pit really cheap that they call the cops <laughs> like this deal's probably too good to be true, therefore might be stolen from Chris Shepard. That's just bonkers. All right. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Linda, for our restaurant of the week, I want to start by talking about Decatur Bar and Pop-Up Factory. This is the new concept from Axelrad owner Adam Brackman, acclaimed Houston chef Monica Pope in the former Beavers space. This is a this is a new bar that does three things. First of all, it's a bar with a cocktail program created by Leslie Krockenberger, formerly Ross, who was at well everywhere, but most recently at a key. Uh, Reserve 101 before that. She was at Canard. She was at Trinity. She worked for St. Arnold for a long time. So uh, certainly a a Tastemaker Award winner for Best Bartender a couple of years ago, et cetera, et cetera. On Fridays, it's also a co-working space. You can show up there at 10 o'clock in the morning and, you know, with your laptop and get your work on and have meetings. But most importantly, at least for our perspective, it is a test kitchen and proving ground for up-and-coming chefs to have a, an audience of diners and try ideas and try to build support to someday open their own restaurants. And they're going to be at Decatur for four to six months. And the first chef is Evelyn Garcia, who is a native Houstonian who went uh, went to the East Coast for culinary school, worked in New York for a long time, won an episode of Chopped, and has been back here for the last few years doing kind of pop-ups at at bars around town. So why don't we start with 
Chef Evelyn, because I know you're pretty familiar with her work. I, I had not been. Well, I don't want to be too long-winded. Look, if you're gonna if you're going to want to experience her food, and this is what I think is most important about this this project right now is first and foremost her bar food, her bar snacks that you can get, you know, five or six days a week, I think. That's right. You get so right, you have the option of uh, there's a, a menu of about 10 bar snacks that bar are available. Bar snacks are outstanding. All the time. Crushing. We had a uh, like a blue crab salad. Yeah. We had a beet hummus. Yeah, there's like... We sa- had a pork larb. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like Southeastern, South, Southeastern Asian. Yeah, Thai style. Thai, a little bit of Vietnamese flavors, like lots of ginger, lots of... Like just really great or like a couple of fish sauces and stuff like that. Look, it's exceptional bar food. Second, secondary is is that she's finally get, getting a dining room to do uh, a tasting menu. Right. If you've encountered her cuisine uh, under a tent cooked on a burner at Axelrad. Or Liberty Station. Right. Or a couple of other places. But yeah, that's where I know her from. Um, is she's been feeding my my cycling friends. Because they're always like stopping in and they're like, oh, who's, you know, who's who's eating, who, who's where? So they'll cycle everywhere. They'll do 25 miles and they're like, I'm ravenous. Where are we going to go? And it's like wherever Evelyn is. Right. So in addition to the bar menu, the, the way that she's going to sort of build a following at least or more of a following is that she's doing a, a four course family style menu that they're serving at Decatur on Friday and Saturday nights, two seatings, $65 a person. Yeah. And we had that. Yes. And. It was really good. It was surprisingly good. It was better than I, right? Like, here's this woman who's been cooking under tents and won an episode of Chopped like four years ago. She's making Thai food now. I, I, I had not experienced her bar food. I was admittedly a little bit skeptical. But oh, I would like he asked me to come with him, and I tell him no all the time. Like, if I think that like the place is going to be a a disaster, like don't put me through that. Like, I'm just I'm highly volatile, and right, I will bait you in the news segment, but I will not bait you about restaurants. If I'm no. taking you to a restaurant, it's with some confidence that it's going to be that it's going to be okay. And so when he told me, he's like, do you want to go here? You know, do you want to go A, B, C, and D? And they, I think she was like A, B or something like that. And I was like, all right, let's do this. Because I have had, like, I've literally just had a simple taco, like a simple taco, but with so many levels of flavors and her condiment game is strong. She makes these delicious pickles and, I mean, she does such a good job for being for just being. I'm, I hate that you say that. It's just like oh, she's been making food from underneath a tent. I mean, look who won a butcher's ball, boo! Yeah, a totally. taco truck <laughs> with a taco. What's up? Taco is king, you know. <laughs> right, uh, but so let's talk a little bit about some of the specific dishes on that four course menu. Uh, with the caveat that it's going to change over time, over this four to six month residency, right? We started with uh, oysters with the, the chili pearls and the Thai basil oil and that little, that leaf with the, uh, 
the salmon row and the uh, Asian pear. Right. Yeah, Off to del- a good start. Yeah, delicate flavors. Yeah, delicious. Uh, vegetables, uh, raw and crispy with the chili jam and a ceviche with ginger vinaigrette and avocado cream on a sesame cracker. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was actually salmon ceviche. Salmon ceviche and really like... Like really bright, uh, fresh tasting, acidic ceviche. Avocado cream kind of yeah. rounded things out. Thai chilies give it a little bit of heat. Yeah. I mean, I, I ate a, you know, this is Houston. It's 2019. We eat a lot of ceviche in this town. Yeah. This was a, this was a very good version of a dish that, you know, we've all had before in various combinations. And I really like the, the, the cracker, that rice cracker is, uh, I see that a lot in, um, in obviously Thai food and some Vietnamese, um, but it's like a really nice crunchy, like really beautiful texture altogether. And then the entree, the, uh, Curry shrimp, the Thai fried chicken, and the bok choy. And a coconut rice. Yeah. That for some odd reason, like for a second, I think I heard someone say, um, is this kind of like foreign correspondence? And I'm like, no, it's not. It's not that at all. Like, don't do that. Don't put that in. Don't put that that omen on this woman. Well, foreign correspondence had really delicious food. It was just weird. Some of it was weird. Like service was weird. Like the drinks were kind of weird. And the honestly, mural was super weird. Huh? That mural was super weird. Everything was so, it, it was just like, it, it was just a little like, there was just like a little off, you know? Anyway, but this was really good. Yes, it was very good. And I I mean, the chicken was crispy and juicy and it came with that kind of yeah. bright papaya salad that kind of cut some of the, the you know, fried fattiness of it. Yeah, it was, it, every, everything was really great. And, you know, I usually you get bok choy that's like oh. boiled into mush. This like still had some texture to it. It yeah. was cooked really well. It's tender. She comes out and presents every course. She's got like an infectious enthusiasm about her. Yeah. Again, I didn't, I had never met her before. I didn't know her at all. But this is a really good forum for her. Yeah. I think she, she presents very well. You know, and it's funny because... Uh, I'm friends with a lot of chefs and there's a, and it's the same thing with bartenders. Like it's either you're take, you've taken yourself entirely way too fucking seriously. Um, you've also been worked to death and you've, you've had to be under a lot of restraints, you know, like you've, you've been put into, you've been put into a box that you don't want to be in. And now all of a sudden you're making good money or, or you finally got your shit together and you're now you're just a jerk, you know? Um, she doesn't have any of that. Like it's really refreshing. Well, it's only the first week. She's on his time. I mean, but what I'm saying is, is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually, I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I don't think she's going to become that. No, 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 no. But it's just, it's just, but she seems very nice and she's very happy. She seems very excited about yeah. this opportunity to be cooking the dishes that she's obviously been thinking about for a really long time for an appreciative audience with uh, an owner and a, an owner and Adam Brackman and a mentor and Monica Pope who are very supportive and you know, it's in, it's in everybody's interest uh, for this to all work out. Yeah. I really think that they, I mean, I really think that once they get rolling um, I think it's going to be a great bar in general and to be able to have that other little side side piece to 
to go in and have dinners there every once in a while. I think that'll be fun. I am, however, I'm worried about like in six months, like what if you don't get enough time to go and then who's the other guy that's going to come after that? You know what I mean? Like, Well, obviously, I mean, I think if this does well for Evelyn, you'll have people lining up to be the next person to take the space. Yeah. Uh, I know a couple of people who have talked to them, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's anything definitive planned and I don't know that there's like a set expiration date, but obviously for Evelyn, the goal is to open her own Thai restaurant, Yeah, you know, taking this following that she's building yeah, and going into an independent space. And, and there's going to be a, a crowdfunding component where if you're really excited about this, you may be able to get involved with some sort of, uh, funding campaign to help her make that dream a reality. So that's all kind of TBA at this point. But, you know, if nothing else, right, go to the bar for Leslie's drinks and that pork larb. Yeah. Like that's reason enough. And then if you like that, sign up for the $65 four course dinner. Yeah. And then I just want to talk very briefly about Fadi's Eatery. This is the new restaurant in the, Park Bins building that is also home to Dackenbop and the Museum District location of Barnaby's Cafe. It replaced Bosta. When did they Kitchen. open? So it opened like right after the new year. Oh, okay. And, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with the Fadi's Mediterranean Grill, the uh, cafeteria concept. This is kind of a version of that, but instead of cafeteria style where you pay for each like little entree, you you know, each little salad or side dish or whatever, uh, at Fadi's Eatery, you order a plate, and it's like a 10-inch square plate, and they'll put as many side dishes on that as will fit uh, for $10.99 or for $13.98 or $14, basically. Like, if you, if you make the jump from 11 to 14, you can add a kebab or a sandwich, like a a gyro or a beef kebab or a chicken kebab to it. So it's a really good deal. <laughs> and what's the service like though? So it's like, it's a fast casual, you know, cafeteria I know it's like, style. Do have, so do you have to get your own drinks? Like? Yes, you have to, yeah, you go through the line and they have, they have bottled sodas and iced tea and water. The, the drinks, the drink selection is pretty limited. I mean, maybe that, that probably might work well. I mean, especially because you have those museum museums over there. Yeah. If you are a museum goer, uh, this is walking distance from the Children's Museum. Yeah. If you're uh, a med center office worker who is looking for a new lunch option. But why wouldn't you just go to Baby Barnaby's, you know? like Or, yeah, I mean, that, well, that Barnaby's is, you know, I like I like Barnaby's and that Barnaby's is busy. This is just a new option, just a okay. slightly different twist. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's not going to, it's not going to change the city or anything, but it's, yeah. again, it's, it's pretty it's close good to where I live and it's very affordable, so... You might you might see me popping into Fadi's Eatery every now and then for like a, you know, a shawarma and a salad. Uh, is that a paid spot or what? No, it is not <laughs> a paid spot. That sounded like a. I was like, what's going on here? I didn't know this. They was bought happening. my they bought my lunch, but they they did not buy my endorsement. I mean, I brought tacos. Jesus. I know. All right, and then yes, you went to the Museum of Natural Science. Yes, and discovered good news. Oh yeah, good news, good news, my friends. Um. They finally closed down that disaster McDonald's 
in the Museum of Natural Science. It drove me so crazy for so many years. I run, not much, uh, I run uh, around Herman and Rice. And whenever I, sometimes I'll pop into the museum to either grab a water, so on and so forth. But I'm a, I'm also a member of um, of that museum. And right. so and so there's something kind of, there's a mixed message about uh, a place for children to learn about science and technology and and the galaxy health and space and his natural history and, and uh, butterflies you know have a big mac and fries yeah and it's like and it's like literally it's children right. busloads of children busloads of children and then they're all eating out of mcdonald's it just like was choking me up every time i'd go in there and i'm like i don't understand this it's almost like when you go to bentob to pick up some someone so, or something and then there's a mcdonald's there and you're like there's literally everyone is dying of obesity over here and you guys are cranking out 10 million garbage burgers you know what all I mean? right so what's there now uh, it's, it's actually run by the museum now. Um, and it's a small little cafe and it's, it does have like a burger and fries and so on and so forth, but it has like fresh fruit and pretzels and, um, a couple of little snacks and salads and some gluten-free cookies and so on and so forth. I mean, I think that like they're moving, they're just moving. We're not this terrible, like. Yeah. Well, you it's know. just not right. When that McDonald's opened in the museum, it wasn't parents weren't as focused on maybe healthy eating for their children in the same way that they are now. Yeah. So it was more socially acceptable and it became more and more offensive kind of as time went on that there was a fast food restaurant in this this place designed to educate children. Yeah. So that's gone. There's a new cafe. It's a better option. People should be museum goers and, overjoyed. And like the cool thing is, is that they have a new uh, social media director, and it's Craig Lovati. So yeah. uh, I'm really stoked about that. Like he's he's a, been a big old nerd for the longest time, and somehow someone gave him a job to fit his quirky personality. So so yeah. Um, so so the Museum of Natural Science is now a better follow on social media. Yes, right? absolutely. So because I'm former Houston Chronicle reporter Craig Lovati is on the case. It's not even that. He's not even but he was Houston Press before then. Yeah. You know, he's just a great Houstonian that is getting his platform, you know. Okay. Uh Linda, I think that does it for you. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, gang. All right. And I will be right back with Randy Holmes. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I'm joined this week by Randy Hines, the owner of the Kalachi Shop, with a location, a very uh, long-standing location in Greenway Plaza and a brand new location in the Heights. Randy, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Eric. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I always like to start these interviews at the beginning, so how did you get into the restaurant business? Yeah, that's a... Great question. So I'll, I'll go back to when I was six years old, and I grew up in Wharton County, an hour southwest of here in a town called El Campo. And that's uh, kind of right in the heart of the Czech Belt. And so I was going to this school called St. Philip's Catholic School, and I was in first grade, and I would eat in the school cafeteria for lunchtime. And, you know, Fridays were like fish stick days, and Tuesdays were like burger days, and chicken spaghetti was somewhere in there, not my favorite. But anyway, almost every day for dessert was kolache day. And so as a six-year-old kid, yeah, of course, we had things like, you know, cookies and donuts and things too, but, but kolaches were very much part of the culture. And so 
some of the women who worked in the cafeteria had names like Bachok and Hernchek and Mubella and Katsul. And um, so kolaches were really just part of the culture and kind of grew up, um, or rather I grew up with that. And so not only in school was I being exposed to them at an early age, and these were like really authentic, awesome, fluffy creations, but in places like Prosheks down the road and Vincix and East Bernard and the Klobasi Kalachi Klobasi Festival in East Bernard. And um, so so the seed for like my love of Kalachi started there. But then a quick fast forward to 2001, I was fresh out of college in Texas A&M and I worked in downtown Houston at a place called um, Deloitte Public Accounting Firm. And so this boss of mine named Matt would, um, he and I would go around and find the best Kalachis in Houston. So we tried all kinds of places and the place that we that we liked the most back in 01 was the Kalachi shop on Richmond. And it was kind of a dive, but man, we just thought it was most authentic compared to what we eat, ate growing up. So for me, it was El Campo. He was from Brenham, both kind of small-ish town guys. And uh, so two seeds in a way. So the six-year-old seed of my love of the pastry, and then there was an, o, an 01, fresh out of college, and my love of the Kalachi shop, which we thought was kind of the king uh, in Houston. And... Um, but even at that point, the thought of being in the restaurant industry was nowhere, nowhere in my mind. Right. So how did you go from Kalachi appreciation to Kalachi entrepreneur? Yeah. Okay. So that involved me leaving Texas. And that was in 05. I moved to Washington, D.C. And like a lot of Texas expats, I just missed all the awesome things that we take for granted here. Yeah, there's no good queso east of the Red River. No. Nobody, people don't realize that. They leave Texas. They don't understand. Well, that was me. I didn't understand. So I go to D.C. and I missed beef jerky and Cajun food and, you know, Tex-Mex, good proper queso. But I, and I don't want to say foremost among those, but certainly right there at the top of those was the kolache. And that was nowhere to be found. I mean, you could probably find a decent margarita somewhere in that triangle. But you couldn't find a single Czech pastry anywhere. And so it was when I was in D.C. in 05, 06, 07, I was like, man, I'm going to learn how to make these myself. And I'm going to bring these to the nation's capital and, like, first make them for myself because I love them, but also make them for, like, friends and maybe even sell them. So this is when, like, at the very earliest time, I was thinking I might, maybe I'll open my own place, but in D.C. That's kind of was my initial thought. And so I was like, I'm going to go back to Houston. I'm going to introduce myself to the owner of the Kalachi shop, who I did not know from Adam. And so in 06, I did. I came back, I called, and I was like, hey, you don't know me, but I want to learn your recipe. I mean, in hindsight, I'm thinking, what? I mean, who does that? Who calls and says, show me your recipe? But, but I did. I didn't know any better. And so anyway, it turned out to be this mid-70-year-old guy named Irwin, and it was as nice as as nice as my own grandfather. And so he said, well, come on down. I'd like to kind of meet you and kind of understand where you're coming from. So, so I did. This was around August of 06. And I said, here's what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm living in D.C. And he said, how about this? How about when you come back in December of 06 to visit your family? How about you come work for me for a couple of weeks? We'll just kind of show you the ropes. I'll get you a feel for what we do so that you could really vet, like, do you really want to do this? Or is it just kind of romantic? So I said, okay. So I did come back in 06. I spent a few weeks and, uh, you know, it was definitely different, but I was still very interested at that point. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, this is, this is like, usually I think that would be enough to dissuade someone from this business because any 
kind of breakfast concept. I mean, you guys open at what, like six thirty every day? Six a.m. Six. So, so to get them to start baking, you're you're there at what, like two or three in the morning? You got it. Yeah. No. No. Fortunately for me, he let me show up like at five in the morning. But still, I was I was staying with my parents an hour away in Wharton County, so I'm waking up at three thirty to get on the road at four to be there at five to then hang out with his bake crew. You know, his longstanding baker whose name is Hortense, and she's been there like 35 years at the time. And and um, so, again, it was that was eye-opening. I wouldn't exactly say I was excited about waking up at 3 in the morning, but I was excited about kind of diving in to see what it was all about. And um, so, surprisingly, it did not, it was not enough to dissuade me, and I was still interested. And my, my hurdle number one, I had kind of surpassed that, so... Okay, so then did you go back to D.C. and open a kolache shop? No. <laughs> great, great question. <laughs> Although, as an interesting tidbit, someone has opened a kolache shop in D.C. since then called Republic Kolache, which I think is awesome. So I actually know the owner. His name is Chris Svetlick, a good uh, Texas expat, coincidentally. But anyway, so no, I did not. I did go back, and um, his wife had passed away shortly after my visit in 06. So she passed away in January of 07. So I wrote him a letter of condolence and then called him in February just to say, hey, how's it going? How are you feeling to offer my condolences and, and you know, verbally on the phone? And um, this was kind of when, when the rubber hit the road. So he and I had, had known each other now for maybe, I don't know, eight months and had various conversations. We'd met a few times and really hit it off. And so he says to me on this phone call, I'm in D.C., it's February of 07, and he says, um, you know, I've been looking for a long time for someone to take over my business. The right person, the right fit, um, someone who, who has an appreciation of the background, who has some of the heritage, who's not making or looking to just make a buck. Um, he said, this is not some kind of you know, money-making machine. It's a place that I've put it, my whole life it, into. It's a little cafe. It's not like it's some huge factory turning out kolaches. Bingo. Right. This was, this was his heart and soul into this place. And, I, and again, Back to one, my buddy and I had no affiliation with this guy. We we could just we could taste his love and his passion and his heritage in the in the pastry. We didn't know who owned it. We just loved it. So so anyway, he says to me, "You are the kind of guy I would love to see take over. Would you be interested in you know being my protege and basically taking over my business?" And I was stunned and floored, and it was unexpected. And I just said, "Erwin, I am so honored." And but can I have like a few weeks to ponder this because I wasn't even. I wasn't even looking for that. And he said, I know it's a big decision, so just take your time. So I think at that moment, I, I might have thought, well, I need a few weeks. But within days, I was like, no way, this is it. Like, this is, this is the coolest thing ever. All right. So were you married at the time? Like, did you have to, did you have to sell somebody else on this? Or, or were you No, I was, I was free and clear, buddy. I, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I had no one else to ask. And I was like, that's it. We're doing it. We're diving in. And, um, and so I, I then moved back to Texas with the intention of then working with him over the next year or so. I moved back in May of 07. So I was raring to go and I got back and he took me out to dinner to some small steakhouse near his farm in Yoakum, Texas, where he spent most of his week. And so there we are at the steakhouse talking business. And we're both thinking maybe 08, 09 might be the transaction date. But things really kind of stalled from like 09, 10, 11. I, I think that part of it is the idea was extremely attractive to both of us, but the but the actuality of doing the transaction takes a lot of work and time and effort and money and plus just his emotional ties. So I was certainly not going to push him, and um, so the years kind of came and went, and I I was continuing to do some contract consulting work, which was my previous 
career. And um, so it was probably around, I don't know, 10, 11, let's say 2010, 2011, where I thought, I don't, I actually don't know if this is ever going to happen. Um, and as a side note, Eric, to answer your earlier question, so yes, I was a bachelor then, but I met my now wife uh, and we uh, got married in 2012. So um, so now we're up to 2012. I'll keep going. You stop me if I need yeah, to. Yeah, no, no, no. So, all right. So, so obviously it, it did come to fruition and you did become the owner of the Kalachi shop, but when, but I, I mean, my memory is that that was 2013 by the time it all finally took yeah, place. Yeah, so the, the actual transition occurred in 14, but but a lot of the legwork did happen in 13. And so so here we are in like 2010, 2011, things are kind of lingering. At this point, I'm like, I don't, maybe this isn't going to happen, so I get married. And then my wife and I one day are talking in, in like uh, late 2012, early 2013 about doing some venture together as a couple, which I'm sure many young couples do. Hey, let's quit the job and go open up a business together. And I'm like, well, there is this Kalachi place that I haven't talked to you in a while. Maybe I can give him a call. So I called Erwin up after not talking to him for like a year or two. And um, anyway, that that conversation resumed like super fast. And I mean, I think Lucy and I were in a were in a cool place to start it. And Erwin was like now really ready. So man, things hit like high gear in 2013. So all that legwork that wasn't happening three or four years earlier was like super happening in 13. And so, yeah, we, um, we, we took over April 1 of 14. Right. And I think I remember kind of that happening because you made some changes pretty quickly to kind of bring Kalachi shop into kind of contemporary food culture, right? You started developing flavors based on ingredients that you got from the farmer's market. Yeah. Which was kind of the first, you know, because there's a lot of kind of generic kolach, like, there, you know, there's a lot of like meat and cheese or, uh, you know, sausage and cheese and jalapeno with mystery. Like, you don't know where that sausage comes from. You probably don't want to know where that sausage comes from. Good point. Kolaches in Houston. But that seemed like at a time when people are always you know, there's, there's a certain group of people who always want to know where their, their food comes from and they prioritize local seasonal ingredients. You, you kind of were differentiating yourself in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you, yeah, you hit it, hit it on the head. And so we, you know, one of our ideas going into it early on prior to taking over was precisely that point that we as consumers, we liked going to places that kind of upped the game or we're more transparent, or at least, if, if nothing else, just like communal. I might kind of use that as just a foundational word. Just doing more than just selling abstracted food, which may have its place. But we just were like, well, we want to, we want to provide like a word that I always like using is convivial, like just like lively and like communal and real. Like, um, so anyway, yeah. So we we started shopping at the at the East Side Farmers Market, which has now moved to the St. John's, I believe, but the Urban Harvest Farmers Market. So we started meeting people like. Um, Lisa of Blue Heron Farms and Al Marcus of The Grateful Bread. And, and um, so, so from April of 14 to around October, we actually did like zero changes just because we were as new restaurant folk. We were like, hey, we need to like, we're like get in there and figure out how to even run a restaurant. So that was the first few months. Right. And you don't, you don't want to mess it up and alienate the regulars. That's exactly the thing. that. No, you're right. That, that was probably our biggest thing. We're like, look, we've had people coming here for 40 plus years 
we're not in here to like rock the boat or anything. So in a way, we really just kept intact a lot of that kind of core line that Irwin had. Our big thing was building on that. It's like the dough recipe, same recipe for 45 years. We made one change, which was he'd been using margarine. Um, we just decided it was time to do real butter. So we still use real butter. Otherwise, same recipe, same, you know, triple rise, et cetera, with the dough. Um, again, we still sell the small sausage and cheese, which he's been selling for 40 years. It's a big seller. But so we just, we added on top of that. So we shut down October uh, for like five weeks. We also kind of brought, gave the place a facelift a little bit. Yeah, it was, it was dingy. <laughs> yeah, to say that I was to say the to least. Be nice about yeah, it. thank you. I, <laughs> um, and so we just decided from from a lot for a lot of different reasons it was time to give it a nice facelift and clean, shall we say, deep clean, change up some equipment. Um, but it, at the same time, we were you know vetting and doing all this purveying of sausage and brisket and um, bourbon cajeta from you know the farmers market and all these cool things that again just as as plain old consumers. We wanted to eat these things. It wasn't like, what do the people want? I mean, we were like, well, what do, what do we like to eat? And hoping that people would also share that joy with well, us. And and also, like, these are flavors that you can't just get at any donut shop that's also selling kolaches, right? Like, correct. There's, there's a competitive advantage in that decision. Yes. Too. Yes, that is absolutely correct. And so, because we you know, I, you know, again, based on my kind of upbringing, I do like all the staples. You know, I like your your apricot and your, you know, poppy seed and your, your clubhouse Nikki, your sausage jalapeno cheese. That's great. And we have all those, but I agree with you. We, we wanted to offer something very special and unique from places that the other people weren't partnering with or, or, you know, just not partnering with anybody anywhere and just kind of doing the staple. Well, and, and maybe at a price that those places didn't feel like they could justify charging, right? Cause right. those, those are a, a more premium. That's correct. Yeah. And, and so we, we just thought, in fact, you know, it, it was kind of a, I don't know, maybe this is too bold of a word to use, but a kolache renaissance nationally going on because they were, I mean, this was popping up in, you know, periodicals across the country and places, new places were popping up outside of Texas, which was unheard of 20 years ago. And yeah, you can get like pretty good kolaches in Brooklyn now, I think. You can. That's exactly, there are actually two places there, uh, Brooklyn kolache and then King's kolache. And I know the owners of both. And uh, now in D.C., Republic Kolache, they're opening up a, a now a Tex-Mex place called Republic Cantina. So, yeah, this wasn't happening 20 years ago, but it certainly was happening in the, like, 2012, 13, 14. Um, Revival Market was doing these their super hot Kolache Saturdays, which was phenomenal. And um, Yes, I, I stood in those lines. Yeah, yeah, I did too. I was just, I was, yeah, exactly. So it was well worth it too, by the way. And um, so we thought, you know, certainly this was the time to really to, to up the game and to, to – do these kinds of um, better ingredients that we thought people would, would be interested in. And they have been. Yeah, I was going to say, so uh, clearly it's working because you you added a second location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the story behind that was, so, you know, yeah, so we, we there we are in the fall of 14 and into 15. We had, we had a great response. So the, you know, people were very happy about the changes and I should say the additions. I mean, cause again, the core was kind of the same, which pleased people who didn't want change. And you had all of the changes that people were uh, appreciative of. So 15 was good. 16 was good. Well, by the early 17, you know, Lucy and I were kind of at a crossroads personally. We're like, well, this has been great. It's been hard, long hour, early hours, long hours. And the, the aside, aside joke was that before we opened, before, sorry, before we took over, we said, hey, doing this small business together, we'll have all this time together. What we didn't know was the kind of time it was. It was like frantic and, you know, you know, uh, long and tired. So we did have a lot of time together, but man, it was like, 
it was kind of at the pit of things. But uh, anyway, so 17 rolls around. We're just really questioning, should we, should we expand? If we do expand, how, where, when? Um, what would that look like for us? You know, we have some young children. That was a big question, too. Is this, would that be too much? And so in the middle of this big question that had been kind of lingering for a few weeks, we're discussing it back and forth. Out of, out of the clear blue sky, we get a phone call from MFT Interests, which is a commercial real estate company. And they said, hey, uh, we know some people in common and they floated your name. We researched you guys and we would love to have you in this new center we're developing. Uh, and I, the nickname for it is Maine at Maine at Maine because it's right there at 11th and Heights Boulevard in the Heights. And we call it that because there's no more central location than where this complex is going to be. And it's going to be where that old uh, post office was at. And which we, Lucy and I knew of because we were frequent. Um, uh, were you either Lola diners or Eight Row Flint drinkers? Well, yeah, I was, I was just going to say, you kind of hit both. We'd been to Lola. We, we'd been to Eight Row Flint, Revival, and all of those places. So we, we knew the area really well. We loved the heights. We, we went there for date night as much as we could. And so when we got the call, we thought, well, if... If we were on the fence before, we're not anymore because this this had everything we'd wanted. The Heights was always kind of at the top of our list as far as communities went. Bam, that was a slam dunk. It had a drive through. That was a slam dunk. And then they said, by the way, we love we love whoever goes there in this bakery cafe to have a full espresso bar because we want we want whoever's going to be there to have this really um, kind of a plus espresso game. And we were already partnering with Boomtown. So Boomtown was excited and ready to like really kick us into high gear. So it had, you know, the, the bar, the drive through the central location, which wasn't like uh, super far away from our, you know, Richmond location. So, I mean, all the boxes were checked and we just, man, we just, we uh, signed the lease and um, took off running. So, okay. So you, and you just, so <laughs> it seems like it, it's taken a while to, to build that, uh, but you opened, uh, you opened at the end of December. Yeah, yeah, December eighteenth. Yeah. So they, yeah. So it was a. It felt long, very long and drawn out. And it sounds like uh, people have probably had the same experience as well. But they called us in like January of seventeen. They, of course, Harvey hit. Um, they they didn't get to tear the building down till around October ish of um, last. Well, technically, I guess October of seventeen. And then you know weather delays, ice storms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They were going to pass it on to us like. March of 18, well, it didn't become until like June. Well, then we personally had delays. So it's just your typical, you know, restaurant story. But we just opened in December. So how's it going? Oh, I mean, it's it's so awesome. I mean, you know, for the past year and a half, you can't help but be anxious, like wondering, it, is this going to be a home run? Like, are we going to, will the ship sink or will it float? Which one is it going to be? And you don't, you just don't know until you, until you put it out there, you know? And I, it has been so... Our, our workers are awesome. The community is awesome. The drive-through's been awesome. I mean, we're just so I, excited. I have to say, as a as a an occasional customer of the the Greenway Plaza location, I'm very jealous of the drive-through. <laughs> I mean, because there's just something you have like it every time. I it's like there's always. I don't know if it's that the salon employees like park like right in the spots near you or what it is, but the, it's just it's always. It's always like harder than I feel like it should be, yeah. given the number of people inside the cafe at any given moment mm-hmm. to find a to find a place to park at at the Greenway Plaza location. Yeah, I mean, us and every other you know tenants customers. It's like this. It's just a real struggle, 
And, um, you know, we, we've made it work because we, there aren't many places open as early as we are. So yeah, I just park in the, like the customer only for the salon. Cause I feel like, I feel like they, there's always, there's at least one other spot. Yeah. And I feel like, like what are they, they're not going to tow me in the three minutes it takes me to, run <laughs> right. in to get two kolaches. So I, yeah, we screw them. I'm, that's all. I mean, it's they're your neighbors. You don't have to agree with me, but that's just how I, as a customer, that's how I approach. Well, I well, I will say that from day one, we we've been very good customers. Sorry, very good neighbors to that whole center, and they've been good neighbors to us. So like, we know every single tenant in there, and like, yeah, the salon folks are just awesome. So they they give us some slack, and we give them some slack, and it's all good. So good. Yeah. So I so I can get away with that. Is yes. What you're yes, saying. you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did want to circle back on this one thing though sure. because. Uh, there is this balance of kind of traditional flavors that people expect, you know, sausage, sausage and cheese, your various fruit flavors, and then you're, you're also innovating. So how do you, how do you come up with these new flavors and, and how do you kind of know when something works and when it doesn't? Yeah, that is a super question. And so I'll give a little 30 second anecdote. So Lucy and I were watching this series on Netflix from a year or two ago called, I think it was called Chef's Table. Yes. That very about? popular series of documentaries. Yes. Yeah. It was awesome. And so one of the one of the episodes was on the Swedish chef, I believe. Yes. Uh, was his name Magnus? I think it's Magnus Nielsen. That's it. You got it. So, and I recall, the, you know, someone asking him a similar question because he was doing things with traditional Swedish cuisine that maybe his parents or grandparents weren't doing. And he said, look, if, if it's not being innovated, it's going to stale and basically like die, you know? So there has to be some kind of evolution. It doesn't mean a wholesale, the tossing out of the origin, but, but some, so anyway, all this to say that it's, you know, we love having our staples. We love having our poppy seed, our apricot. We do prune during the holidays, um, which is what I would have seen growing up at Prashik's and Vincic's. That's awesome. Um, but again, in, in a city of, you know, approximately 5 million people with all these trailblazers, you know, I mean, Look at, you know, all the James Beard Award winners and nominees in the city. You know, they've also blazed a trail for experimentation and fusion. And so we just thought, well, let's let's bring that to the Kalachi realm in a way that we weren't seeing anywhere at the time. And um, so that being so that answers the first part of your question. The second part is, how do you know? Boy, that's a gray area. And we've tried things that were like, man, that is. (laughs) In fact, I'll just I'll say that we recently did uh, just as an in-house test. We have this worker that's an amazing cook, and he made up a fresh batch of bulgogi and kimchi, and we stuffed that in the kolache. And you know, we weren't wild about it, and so you probably will never see a bulgogi kolache from us, at least see, not because I'm kind of intrigued. That that actually well, sounds pretty good. And to me. maybe we will. I, would, I don't want to, you know, jump too fast. Let's put it this way: we'd need further testing on ratios, and and uh, maybe it was too dry. But but um, those are the kinds of things that we're always testing out. Some make it through, some don't. I I know, I'll give you another example. So a popular one kind of um, at certain places around town might be like a pepperoni kolache or a pizza kolache. So that will be one that traditionally we've said, look, we're not like, we're not going to do that one. Um, however, if I could find a place that's doing like really phenomenal, like small batch salami with some like cheese from you know the dairy maids that might be pretty cool you know we might do that so again it's a fine line and i don't we don't always have the right answer so we've tried things that have kind of flopped and we've not tried things maybe it's bulgogi that maybe we should so so all this to say it's it, it's a it's a work in progress 
Yes. Yeah, because I, you know, the um, like Pondicherry and Hugs and Donuts collaborated on a chicken tikka masala kolache. Yeah. That was a pretty big hit, I think, for Pondicherry. But do you do you kind of look at that and feel like it's too far outside the brand, or do you? I mean, because you're you're pretty associated with like pretty traditional Texan. Yeah, I said th- this is a great. I think it's a very f- fine point that you make because you know we always have to consider the kolache shop brand and not do something that we would consider to be. And, you know, in fact, we're also considering this in every facet, right? So where we're advertising and what we're saying and not saying. So I, I think probably for our brand, yes. But what I like about it is for them, no, because, you know, because of the nature of the cuisine that they're doing, it makes perfect sense. So it brings recognition and acclaim to this pastry that we all love. But I think for us, yeah, probably we wouldn't do something maybe, in our opinion, we might say it's a bit far out. But again, we also, you know, come come later this year to next year, we might say, never mind, it's not too far out and we try it. So it's kind of, you know, an evolution for us as well. And it and it seems like you're kind of in touch with this kind of national kolache movement. Do you do you get some inspiration from some of these other kolache shops that are outside of Texas? Oh man. I mean for sure. I mean if if you if you were to ask me what has been one of the funnest things you've experienced since you've opened, it's for sure been this like niche um kolache family across the country and we just we we have we've taken road trips across the country to see these people and like do you see in virginia and st louis and baton rouge and san marcos here in texas and they've visited us so the brooklyn folks from king's kolache visited us um people from utah have visited we've corresponded with someone in australia called kolache cravings so so we watch what they do as well so um you know back in i think it was early 17 we did this um Jalapeno cream gravy and breakfast sausage one, which was which, in its own in its own right, is not so novel. Which is we weren't doing it, but some folks somewhere else in the country were, and they said this is one of our best sellers. We're like, well, shoot, we're gonna do it too, you know. And we got we get we got their ratios. They gave us some suggestions on how to best how to best put it together and what's worked for them. And so we just love talking kolaches. I have to ask. So now that you've opened a second one, are you starting to think about a third? Um. <laughs> So I was thinking about a third like six months ago before we even opened. And Lucy's like, that's enough. Like you need, you need to focus on getting this guy out of the water and that's, that it'll, you know, that's it. So um, we, we would certainly love to open a third, but only organically when it makes sense for us. And so that, that wouldn't be anytime soon, but um, we certainly are very open to that and optimistic. I'll put, put it that way. All right. Cause we have a new, we have a new landlord here in the, in the Gal Media building here. And so I don't know if you, this may be too close to the Greenway Plaza location, but I, I'll, I'll connect you with them in. if you're, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking that, that all of us here would, would appreciate having walking distance access. So Understood. I, I'm yeah. Putting that out Excited there. Excited right. to know. And then I feel like I can't, I can't let you go without asking you about uh, Kalachi versus Klobosniki. Oh man, you had to ask that question. Didn't I, you? I feel like I do. Do you do you have an like do you have an opinion? Because every time, you know, I say sausage kolache, yeah, you know, I get the well actually yeah, that's a klobosniki. Yes. Do you do you get into this with people? I mean, do you you know? Well, I, I would. Do you have an opinion? I, I do. 
I do have an opinion. Okay, so it's it's appropriately measured given that I I am I am in retail, so I will put it this way. So, so I will say back in Wharton County in the '80s, I surprisingly never heard that word ever. Not in Prosecs, not in Vincix. I just saw people advertise these things as pig in the blankets, or better yet, just pigs. That's what they were called, uh, or sausage kolaches. So those kind of three were kind of thrown around. My understanding is the klobosnik, singular klobosniki word, came out of the um, kolache mecca of like the West Texas area. So check stop, village bakery. Maybe it didn't make it down to, you know, Wharton County when I was a boy. But I do know it's that is a um, the more proper technical term because a kolache, I know kolo, which is the root of the word kolache, means a wheel or round and going way back to the mother country. So, I, you know, I appreciate all that. What I would, my personal response would be, when possible, we like to use the terms distinctly, For, you know, just 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 to be clear. Um, however, you know, we're in a city where, like myself, many people have no clue what that word is. And we are not in the business of browbeating someone. All I care about is, is it tasty in your mouth? And did you get served with a smile? And are you happy? I don't really care what you call it. I just want you to feel happy and excited to, to be there. See, I, I do sort of care what you call it, and I want you to call it a kolache. <laughs> the, the, from, <laughs> That's awesome. Right. I, I didn't see that coming, though. From, from my perspective, klobosniki is this, like, pedantic, fussy right. term yeah. that, that, you know, these dogmatic purists use to kind of beat people over the head with. It's, well, like, <laughs> it's like this battle has been, has been fought and lost by <laughs> klobosniki. <laughs> and anyone who, it, it just seems like every now and then someone brings it up it's like, well, actually, it's like, well, well, actually, why don't you just shut up? <laughs> yeah, we, we have on occasion um, run, run into folks who, um, you know, give us give us their mind. But, but again, we just um, my big thing is come in, eat whatever you want to call it. Just enjoy it and, uh, uh, you know, come enjoy our passion with us. All right. Well, Randy, this has been this has been a lot of fun. Um, Agreed. We are we are coming to the end of the interview, which means that it is time for the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. All right, Randy Hines, what is your favorite cookbook? Oh man, the Homesick Texan. That's a, a very good answer. Uh, what's the first band you ever saw in concert? Um, it was called Credence Clearwater Revisited, which is a knockoff fan of the Credence Clearwater Revival. It was I actually, awesome, by the way. I actually saw Credence Clearwater Revisited. No so, way! Yeah. Oh, so cool. Uh, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Yeah, um, Raising Cane's. Solid. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Ooh, Nolan Ryan. And then finally, what is your go-to pizza order? Yeah, I like Hawaiian, but sub pepperoni for Canadian bacon. Not a Canadian bacon fan. All right. Uh, give us the website and the social media and all that You've for got Kalachi it. Shop. Yeah, website, kalachishop.com. Make sure it's uh, S-H-O-P-P-E. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all that information will be on our, on our website. And uh, again, we're at Richmond at uh, 3945 Richmond Avenue, Heights, 1031 Heights Boulevard. And uh, we'd love to see you guys come out. Awesome. Thank you. And you can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. This is your periodic reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast uh, via Apple Podcasts, via Google Play, and most recently, Spotify. So thanks so much for listening. 
I'll be back in a few moments.